Welcome to Good Sex at NYU, a podcast about sex, relationships, health, and mental health in a sex-positive space. So if you're looking for sometimes serious, sometimes funny, and always sex-positive discussions, then you're in the right place. I'm Danielle Elliman, Associate Director of Sexual and Relationship Respect Services at Counseling and Wellness Services. I use she, her pronouns. And I am April Fellers, a nurse and sexual health educator at the Student Health Center. I also use she, her pronouns. We are two white, cisgender, heterosexual, female-identifying clinicians, one with a medical background and the other with mental health experience, who seek to create a space that is inclusive of all identities, backgrounds, and perspectives. Activation warning. The contents of this podcast is about sex and relationships. The topics might be uncomfortable and awkward. But we hope that listeners will sit with their discomfort and consider new ideas and not judge others for their identities, their likes, and desires. The intention is for the conversation to be positive, but at times we may talk about harms, boundaries that were violated, and trauma that has occurred, which can be difficult for some listeners. Take care of yourself. Listen to your body, and if need be, turn off the podcasts. Consider what your body and your mind needs to move through the reaction to difficult content. This could mean turning on a TV show, listening to music, calling a friend, going for a walk, or reaching out to Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999 or Safe Horizons at 1-800-621-4673. Welcome to Good Sex at NYU. We are delighted to welcome Alexander Pines to the podcast today. Alexander is currently the Assistant Director for Global Diversity Education and Training in the Office of Global Inclusion at NYU, where he develops and facilitates workshops on power, privilege, and identity for faculty, students, and staff across campus. He also works with his colleagues at the Center for Multicultural Education and Programs to support events like Solidarity Week and NYU's cultural graduations. Prior to this role, he worked at NYU's Office of Student Success and the Financial Education Team, directly supporting students and helping them navigate university life. He holds an MFA from the nonfiction writing program at the University of Iowa and a BA in American Studies and Creative Writing from Columbia University. His essays and criticism on monsters, transmasculinity, and American empire have been published in Bomb, Vice, The Rumpus, The Black Warrior Review, and elsewhere. In his spare time, he's probably painting his nails, and I can attest you all should go on the YouTube and look because these nails are amazing. Alexander, would you like to share your pronouns with our listeners? And is there anything else you think it would be good for our listeners to know before we get started? Uh, sure. Yeah. I use he, him pronouns. And I think my way too long bio with <laughs> way too long title, OGI, Office of Global Inclusion, it's actually, there's even an even longer version of the office oh. name. It's the Office of Global Inclusion, Diversity, and Strategic Innovation. Yeah. So it's even more of a mouthful <laughs> yeah. than, than it could be. <laughs> Awesome. Oh, we're happy to have you here. Um, can you tell us just one thing that you like about the NYU community? Yeah. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna cheat a little bit and mm -hmm. talk about my coworkers if that's not too yeah, obnoxious. Um, but what I think I really appreciate. I started in this role last September, and I I love coming into work with people who really care mm -hmm. and who really not just about the work. Not that caring about your work isn't important, but who really care. Like who who can you know we'll we'll have conversations about like decolonization we'll have conversations about like whether or not it's right for museums to be like stealing things from people mm. and stuff like that and it's like those are the sorts of conversations and things that really enrich kind of my day-to-day -day where it feels like yes you know we're all here 
like and sometimes the the job is really annoying it's <laughs> like cleaning glitter off of tables in the lounge which we did for like hours right before a training for faculty so it was real embarrassing um right it's that but it's also like i get to have these like wonderful conversations with people who you know bring so much of themselves into that space every single day it's a real pleasure to be around and i feel like that's, that's something you don't get everywhere like my partner who works in tech can't say the word union at work mm, wow which is wild um, yeah. mm -hmm. so yeah that's something i really really appreciate well, yeah. I'm very grateful for your office. I've done lots of the workshops and <laughs> enjoy all of the people that I've ever met from your office. So I'm glad that it exists and that you are there. Yeah, we're a fun crew. Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely had interactions with your colleagues as well. And it's a great group. So we're going to try to create a safe space for you to answer some questions. Um, but feel free if, you know, one of the questions you want to turn that around on us, we want this to be an equitable space, right? Uh, we want you to come in here and feel like you can share with us what you feel comfortable, but also if there's you know a boundary that you want to hold, you can just let us know and we'll be happy to move on to the next question. Great. Love it. Mm -hmm. So who is your first or current crush and was it a real person, literary or TV character, a musician? I have I have two that I'll give. So the first one who I, I don't think I was consciously aware was a crush when I was until maybe like middle school. I didn't really understand. Like I just wanted to like marry my cat. <laughs> like, I asked my mom when I was like five, I was like, what's marriage? And she was like, well, this is in like the 90s. She's like, you know, marriage is when a man and a woman love each other very much and they get married. And I was like, cool. The only boy I can tolerate is my cat. <laughs> so that's what I'm marrying. Great. I'm set. I wasn't really cognizant of like crushes <laughs> until I got older. Um, but I remember being enamored with Raven on the original Teen uh -huh. Titans, the animated Teen Titans from like the early 2000s. She was really broody. And given that I was like a little emo baby, this <laughs> there was a, a pattern here. Um, but yeah, I was obsessed with her. And then in middle school, going into, I think, eighth grade, I watched Viva Vendetta for the first time oh. with Natalie Portman. Yeah. Oh, okay. And I haven't seen the movie, but I know her look there. Yes. Yeah. And you would think that like there is like actually a queer story in Viva Vendetta um, between two women. That wasn't it. No, it wasn't mm. that. that. That would have been the relevant thing. It was just this random moment where like Natalie Portman like wakes up and initially you can't tell she's wearing a tank top and then it like becomes obvious she is because that makes sense it wasn't that kind of movie <laughs> but my little 13 year old self was disappointed <laughs> when i saw the tank top and something registered and i was like oh this makes a lot of things make sense and for context i am a trans man at the time i believed myself to be a woman so it was like oh this everything now makes sense so i had a huge huge crush on natalie portman um circa that particular film mm-hmm is she still a celebrity crush? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I really have celebrity crushes anymore, but certainly she was formative um, <laughs> as, as a kid. She's a memorable one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Can you tell us a little bit more about like your journey of personal boundaries and communication skills? Like where did they come from? Like how did how did you develop those boundaries for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's very much a work in progress. I think weird, maybe not weirdly. I, I find I'm much better at communicating and boundary setting in an office setting than mm -hmm. I am at home in my personal life. Mm -hmm. um, and I, this is probably something to like unpack in therapy, like why, <laughs> why that is, why my professional boundaries are easier to set. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm great at professional <laughs> boundaries either. But I think because I'm able to kind of very clearly point to like, these are projects that I have done well at, or like I can kind of establish like, this is why I belong. And this is why my opinions or my whatever, et cetera, um, in an office setting matter, it becomes easier for me to like speak up 
or to you know push back on things, I feel more maybe secure in those environments because there's just you know I'm thinking where it's it's performance evaluation season right now, right? So I can like point, I can hold up my thing and say like, see, look, this is why you should listen to me. Whereas in a personal relationship, I feel I don't always feel that confident and that sense of like if I assert my boundary, it's actually going to be a good thing. It'll be mm -hmm. okay. Mm -hmm. And so it's something that I've been working on increasingly of trying to just, you know, be a little bit more clear, a little bit more, um, you know, with friends being like, hey, maybe actually you shouldn't cancel on me four times because <laughs> I've rearranged my life like a bunch of times for you. Yeah. And this is getting really frustrating. And I feel like I do. I am overly accommodating in personal relationships in a way that like professional me would not be. And mm -hmm. so it can sometimes be weird. Like my, my partner who I've been with for um, eight years this August, she's always like shocked when I like describe a work encounter. She's like, you're never like, like <laughs> why can you say that to your boss, but not to your friend? <laughs> like yeah. what's going on here? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's something that's definitely in progress. Um, I think that's fascinating. Like thinking about like, you know, there is so much highlighting of like work-life balance. And so mm -hmm. like some of those, and also like work, generally has clear expectations, right? Like, this is your job. This is what you're going to do. And like, obviously there's, you know, in meetings, you get to present things or push back or whatever. But I don't know. I just, I feel like there's so much more of like clear cut boundaries already set in place and work. And it feels okay. Of like, of course, they're not going to ask you to work till 9 PM when you're supposed to be off at five. Like that's, yeah. that's unreasonable. And of course, like, you know, and so I, I, that's, that is interesting though. I've never, I've never thought about that, that separation though. Yeah. And then like there are also times where like my partner will have to be like, you need to stop using your work voice. <laughs> like, <laughs> to you? Yes. With, with her? Yeah. Because <laughs> I used to when I was in the Office of Student Success, I was a case manager. And so I was I was working with students all day, every day. And when you do that for long enough, you try to I think you turn into a person that sees every interaction as a problem to be solved mm -hmm. because that's what I was doing. And this was also at the height of the pandemic. Um, and I was doing it in my house. And so there wasn't that physical mm -hmm. like I get to get on a train, read my book and decompress and then be a, a human being or a different kind of human being again. Um, it was like, okay, I'm going to, you know, close my laptop and walk into the living room. And she got to a point where she was like, I am not 18. <laughs> I'm not one of your students. I am a big girl. <laughs> you know, like, you, like you don't need to talk to me, you know, in that like specific kind of patient tone that you use to explain to somebody why they need to go to the bursar. And so that was a real, I was like, oh, right. Having to kind of recalibrate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's also something about a work environment versus a personal environment where we're sort of taught to not engage our vulnerability or our emotions. And so we turn that off a little bit as mm -hmm. much as we can. Sometimes it doesn't work. But I think that's how like when you go into like your personal world, like your emotions get turned back on. And like when you add emotion into boundaries, like that can complicate the setting of the consequences of the boundaries, right? Yeah. So I feel like there's, mm -hmm. okay, I have to be professional, my professional self, like I can't be emotional, I have to be like on, right? And then you go into your personal life, like I've just been putting on this mask all day and now I have to go deal with these like other people that I love and care about. And so it's harder for me to like implement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's funny too, because like I came out as trans at 19 I wasn't ever really closeted as a queer person. Everybody, when I came out, it was like, yes, we all know. Um, it was like one of those in, in um, high school. And people will say to me, like, oh, my God, you're so brave. You're so assertive. Like, that was such a, like, big. And I was like, wasn't Like, I was just trying to live. Um, but it, it's, it, it, it can be weird for me to kind of navigate 
Um, I think some people in my life have this impression of me as like this, like very confident, self-assured because I like I did. I made a huge decision at 19 and I was not going to let anybody tell me anything about it. I informed people afterward. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I called my mom and said, hey, is it OK? You know, sure. I just mm-hmm. called her like, hey, BT dubs, you know, this mm-hmm. has happened. Mm-hmm. And so it can be sometimes weird for me to think like, OK, yeah, at 19 years old, you're able to do that. And yet, why is it so hard to negotiate like, you know, maybe I don't have to make a phone call home every so often, or maybe I don't have to do this. Maybe, I, you know, and kind of putting myself first mm-hmm. in those women think much lower stakes ways, <laughs> but yeah, mm-hmm. it's a process. Yeah. 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 I think for sure. I was also just thinking when you were saying like, we probably don't love our bosses in the same way that we love our partners or love our friends. Well, there's power and control in different yeah. ways, yeah. right? Like our boss has power over our valuation and our income <laughs> and our job status. Whereas like sometimes our family has a lot of power mm-hmm. over us in various different ways, but like you can always get a new boss, right? Like you can't get a new parent. Right. <laughs> um, right. Maybe you can get a new you know, partner, but that's complicated and complex. Right. And so I feel like there, there's these different power structures that are happening as well mm-hmm. that I think complicate how we implement boundaries. I talk, I have a workshop called Navigating Healthy Dating Relationships, and we talk a lot about different communication styles and like when you might be more like passive and when you might be more assertive or aggressive. And so mm-hmm. sometimes it depends on like those power structures how you want to engage and how you're like setting the boundaries and communicating. Um, so yeah, I think like the power is always underlying mm-hmm. that, that s- situation. Yeah. Yeah. Like something I thinking about weirdly is like who chooses, what, 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 what does it mean to choose other people and to choose people in our lives? Mm-hmm. And again, like at work, it's sort of like, well, you did like, you went through a long process <laughs> to mm-hmm. pick me, mm-hmm. you know, like, you, we went on like several multi-hour conversations, a, <laughs> a whole journey. I had to write things in advance and like that kind of formal, like the way that, that work relationships are kind of formal or those power relationships do exist. It does feel, um, I don't know, sometimes I feel like with personal relationships, it's like there are no consequences if you just stop choosing mm. me. And I think that can be tough to sort of navigate. Or like I moved away from my, I made some really great friends in graduate school who I love and I would love to be in closer touch with. But we all moved to different parts of the country and it's like, it's so much harder for me to like choose those relationships um, because they involve usually getting on a plane and I don't make that kind of, I don't don't make like (laughs) casual weekend jaunt to, you know, New Mexico where some of my friends live or to Florida um, money. And so that, that like, as much as I, there's the, the power dynamic in a real material sense in a work relationship, there's also this, like, I think, tenuousness to relationships, especially mm-hmm. after the pandemic where we've all been separated for so long. Mm-hmm. That's just been kind of weird and confusing to navigate, too. Yeah. I've always been jealous of the people that could just, like, move to another place and be like, okay, bye. Those friends were my, my you know, that life was that life. And I'm now in this other life and I don't even think about you anymore. And I'm just like, how, how do you do that? Like, yeah. I always think, like, I feel so guilty that, like, I'm not talking to my friends from college, even though I graduated from college almost 20 years ago. And, like, yeah. they don't contact me. Why am I feeling guilty about <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I have friends from high school where it's like, we haven't seen each other in a decade. And yet I'm like, every time I'm in the vicinity of the Midwest, I feel this, like, Pavlovian, like, okay, I have to text, you know, this person, this person, this person. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm the opposite of y'all. I think I'm that person who, like, I haven't talked to friends from high school in years and, and years just okay. no guilt <laughs> at all when i go back there <laughs> now my family's a different story and i think like i may be in contact with one friend from college uh, but all of my grad school friends are here so of course i'm more in touch with folks mm-hmm. from grad school than i was anyplace else because i 
date around in yeah. the same place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also was in the Peace Corps. And so I like I went all these and I have a few Peace Corps friends as well that I'm still in touch with. But I'm like, I would love to be in touch with them. But I think like we've also moved and shift throughout our life. We're so yeah. different now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that has a, an impact for me. Not that I'm like, you know, kissing everyone goodbye and I don't care. But <laughs> <laughs> I just think like, oh, well, I mean, 20 years later, like it's hard to yeah. find things in common. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So we've kind of been touching around this, but specifically in sexual and intimate relationships, what role do you feel like communication plays in those settings? Oh, huge. It's the most, yeah, it's the most important thing. I feel like the 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 number one kind of conflict my partner and I get into, and again, we've been together for a long time. We know each other very well, is feeling like one of us has expected the other one to be a mind reader mm. because, you know, we get tired and we both have kind of stressful jobs and like the world has been a nightmare and so like when all of those things tend to happen i feel like communication is the first thing to go Mm -hmm. um, because it's like i'm you know there are times where i feel like i'm just so exhausted i can barely like like she said to me the other night she was like will it be year nine of being together when you're able to just tell me when you're hungry because i go from like fine to a monster very quickly my husband's the same way (laughs) and like sometimes even i don't know when i've crossed that threshold where i will just be we'll be watching tv on the couch and then i will be a monster um and like yeah it's because i'm too tired to like even check in with myself Mm -hmm. enough to be able to say like oh hey like we should figure out dinner Mm-hmm. which is the most annoying conversation to have. it's like every day you have to think about what <laughs> yes. you're gonna eat it's so annoying <laughs> yeah like as much as i love food i do understand the like soylent people who are like no i'm just gonna drink this shit and like i get it like it's one less decision you have to make um because i definitely get decision fatigue but yeah i feel like it's the most important part of any kind of relationship and and that's really you know where i have made mistakes in relationships is consistently where i have just failed to communicate my needs failed to communicate like where I'm at or not done a good enough job of really listening to what the other person was trying to tell me. Mm. I feel like that's where all of the the problems lie. Yeah. Something that you're sort of speaking to is, is conflict. And I think a, a myth around relationships is that conflict, you know, doesn't happen or it shouldn't, or we shouldn't prepare for it. But I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit about like how you react when there is conflict and maybe some things that you've learned that maybe you wish you would have known a little bit sooner. Yeah, I so I grew up in a house where we were all like yelling at each other all the time, um, which was good and bad. Um, <laughs> you know, there were pros and cons. I think the benefit of that or what that experience kind of gave me moving into adulthood was was not seeing conflict as a negative inherently mm-hmm. and, and being comfortable, loudly, aggressively disagreeing with people and still feeling secure in my relationships with them, um, even if there are things that, you know, I would maybe not. Like disagreements where I'm like, you know, if you weren't related to me, <laughs> I would not maybe want to keep talking to you, especially about politics um, with some members of my family. But I felt like that is something I'm actually quite grateful for because I think it prepared me to to coexist with folks who have maybe very, very strong opinions that I don't necessarily mesh with. Um, and so in that respect, I think I handle conflict maybe less defensively than I would otherwise. I think what I've had to really learn as the conflict has gone from like opinions about things that are maybe important but not related necessarily to like relationships so like you know big loud disagreements about movies big loud disagreements about politics which are a different thing but like still less personal than like big loud disagreements about like how we want to live our lives Mm -hmm. right that's Mm -hmm. that feels those stakes feel different what i've had to kind of learn is how to see myself less as like another loud voice that's like sort of jockeying 
and and be really receptive to feedback and understand and internalize what somebody else is saying about my behavior without turning that into defensiveness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been you know, the most important skill I could have learned in the last 10 years, being able to really listen to somebody and say, like, you're not attacking my personhood. You know, I can still be secure in myself, hear this feedback and understand, like, okay, this is how my behavior has affected you. Mm -hmm. And you've explained that clearly. How am I going to make adjustments to that? And so that I think, you know, as a younger person, that's what I would go back Mm -hmm. and be like, hey, kiddo, (laughs) guess what? You're not always right. (laughs) Like, it's okay to be wrong. It's it's necessary to be wrong and to learn how to be wrong gracefully, I think Mm -hmm. is the most I mean, that's like, you know, my my work, my day to day work is is training people how to be wrong gracefully in Mm -hmm. many ways, Mm -hmm. um, because we are all going to by nature, just being in community with other people, there's going to be conflict Mm -hmm. and learning how to embrace that and see that as an opportunity for change and for growth and for getting better and improving, I think is absolutely necessary, especially in relationships. My relationship would not still be here after eight years if we hadn't had like good productive conflict. Right. Right. Well, something else that I'm hearing in there and correct me if I'm wrong is that you're also not internalizing some of those things. Because I think one of the things that we will often do is when we're in conflict and we're hearing that feedback, we hear that like we've done something wrong and that means that we're bad. Mm-hmm. And so we internalize that. And I think that's really harmful too. And so to not internalize mm-hmm. when you are getting some feedback, it doesn't mean that you're bad. You should take that shame and really sort of think you know negative things about yourself. But to be like, okay, I did something that was harmful, but that doesn't mean I'm a terrible person. Yeah, exactly. I think I think the difference between like guilt and shame, mm-hmm. um, this yeah. is something uh, Renee Brown. Renee Brown yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like what she says about shame being destructive to the self mm-hmm. um, and how that can be kind of poison. And I used to sort of I think you you see the like Twitter phrase like white guilt is useless or da da da. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true to an extent, like the ways in which like white folks are the people who, who don't hold marginalized identities can kind of weaponize or take up space with their guilt. That mm-hmm. certainly is a separate thing. But I think the notion of guilt as a calling to redress, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that is actually a productive emotion and and allowing like when you're hearing that feedback, yeah, allowing yourself maybe to feel guilty in the sense of like, maybe there is a thing I need to do differently, Mm -hmm. as opposed to those feelings of shame of, you know, I think as people, we will do anything to avoid feeling ashamed. And that's where those feelings of defensiveness or kind of, you know, just rejecting what the other person is saying can really get inflamed um mm-hmm. so yeah embrace guilt i guess the... i mean it sounds like you've come a long way from your childhood and that would not have happened if you had not embraced that guilt and, and kind of learned and grown along the way and it seems like in some trial and error and practice things things have gotten better and you can reflect back and it, it sounds like you really have embraced that that piece yeah absolutely and it's also like it's something like Understand. I think this is um, at NYU, Professor Dolly Chu, her whole thing of or Chug, um, I'm goodish person, mm-hmm. right? Understanding that like you can accept feedback, you can hear things about yourself and say like, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm never going to be perfect and still striving to be better and understanding that like you're going to mess up and being OK with that, mm-hmm. I think is, is really, really necessary because you are going to mess up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No one's perfect. And yeah, we just need to strive to be self-aware in the areas where we can have control because I think that's another issue that comes up like I don't have control of all these other things but like I have control of me and so what areas can I really sort of make improvements on slowly and hopefully steadily along my journey yeah how do you define and experience intimacy outside of traditional 
romantic notions of, of sexual relationships and can you provide examples of different ways and different types of intimacy in your life? Yeah. I mean, I think like as a queer person, as a trans person, I think there is like already a good deal of intentional reckoning with the sort of like friendship versus romantic relationship, that mm-hmm. kind of binary. Like I think in, in queer community, or at least in the communities I've been part of, there's a real understanding that like putting all of your expectations for any kind of intimacy on a single human being is mm-hmm. uh, not a good idea. <laughs> um, and, you know, doesn't doesn't lead to everybody feeling fulfilled and feeling supported. And so I think, you know, being able to just like share like what I'm going through with my friends or I remember one year uh, my best friend and I were both single on Valentine's Day and I was like, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to McDonald's. We're going to get McDonald's. We were poor. We were college students. <laughs> we had no money. We had McDonald's money. We're going to go to McDonald's. We're going to go to McDally Jackson and we're going to pick out books for each other. And then we're going to go to this like stupid party. And that's going to be our delightful Valentine's Day. And it was great. I loved it. It was a super fun time. We like dressed up and we're like sitting in this McDonald's eating our nuggets, you know, <laughs> in, like suits or, you know, little things like. You know, maybe maybe it's silly, but like, you know, like group chats and like just like being able to kind of engage constantly and and keep your friends as part of the sort of dailiness of your Mm -hmm. life. I think that's what happens as you age. Right. It's so much harder to to have other human beings outside of a significant other kind of go through life alongside you because it's you know, we just don't have time. And so what are ways in which you can kind of witness each other, you know, yes, in those big moments or at parties or at celebrations, the sort of structured times that we like think of being with other people how can we disrupt that a little bit and and just have you know like i love doing errand friend hangs yes right like hey i have to go to target and you live near the target let's Mm -hmm. hang out and go to target and then like catch up over coffee like stuff Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. like the sort of the mundane the daily i think that's where a lot of intimacy happens Mm -hmm. um yeah yeah, or like grocery runs. I also love seeing what like people buy. I'm, I'm nosy. I'm super, I'm the, don't ever invite me to your apartment. <laughs> like I am the worst. Um, but like, ooh, you buy this pan of chips, or ooh, you getting bougie. You're getting this kind of stuff. you know, like stuff like that. I think is is a, a way to really know people and and can witness them, for lack of a better word, outside of the context of a, a traditional relationship. I also like that you're speaking to the fact that oftentimes we want a partner to be all things. And that's really this misconception, this notion of like culture that says like, our partner has to be our best friend and our soulmate and our, you know, sex goddess or God, you know, like they have to be everything. And that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. But to like have these intimacies with friends and just, again, making it simple. So it doesn't have to be, we have to go to a concert or we have to, you know, go do something really big and expensive, especially in New York because everything's Mm -hmm. expensive. Mm -hmm. So going, you know, on a, what do you call it? Errand? Yeah, like an um, errand friend date. Errand friend yeah. date. That, yeah. That's what it was. Okay. So like those are those are just ways that you can be in each other's life daily, right? Mm-hmm. And it's someone outside of your partner. Because again, I don't think that you have to have just one person. That's putting all your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, let's like make sure that we're debunking some of those myths as well. That like you need to have other people in your life because your partner can't be. Yeah. All yeah. things. Yeah, exactly. Like my, I mean, this is a very silly example, but like uh, my partner, not a huge fan of Drag Race. She finds competition reality shows stressful, just as <laughs> I find dating reality shows stressful. <laughs> and so like when I watch Drag Race, I don't make her watch it with me. Mm-hmm. I like text my friends who also watch, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, that's a very simple thing. But like, instead yeah. of me being like resentful that my partner never wants to watch Drag Race and da 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 da, da it's like, no, I'll just put it on when I'm doing my nails, which I insist on doing once a week anyway. <laughs> like, so I have this time carved out mm-hmm. and then I can text people who actually like do enjoy this thing and I can share that with them instead of, you know, it being this like weird object of resentment in, mm-hmm. in that relationship. 
And are those voice text? Because you're doing your nails. So if you know, like, <laughs> I I do. There? I can't. I use a very quick drawing top coat. Okay. And mm-hmm. so I can usually like carefully type on my computer because <laughs> okay. I have the like messages uh-huh. app. Okay. So I'll have like Drag Race up on one screen and then like my crappy like second monitor that's like from 2007 and terrible <laughs> that I bought, like, for 50 bucks during COVID. Um, that's where I like can text people. Okay. It's, it's I was a like, I had system. an image. I'm like, you're going to ruin your nails. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I also feel like that speaks to what we were talking about before that like when you text your high school friends, those relationships are not anywhere close to what your friendships are here in New York because they're just not seeing you on that day to day. And you spend your hour and you have coffee with them talking about meaningless, superficial stuff of like, oh, this is what my job is. These are a few fun things I've done. And it's just not the same as like what's actually going on in your life and like what you're struggling with or what you are really joyful about these days. And and there's just so much you miss in the day to day if you aren't actually living life alongside people. And you just can't share that in an hour at a meal or coffee. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what made long. I did long distance for three years as a graduate student and it was almost impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, we ended up actually, we did break up my like last semester of graduate school. We got back together a few months later after I graduated, but it was just like, I felt like I can't be present here. I moved to Iowa. Um, so I can't be present in Iowa with, you know, going through this wild in graduate school in general is wild, but like art school where everyone's a writer, you know, the pettiest kind of people on the planet. (laughs) And like your dentist is a writer, your barista is a writer, everyone in this town of 30,000 is, you know, I I couldn't fully be present in that experience and also be present for my partner. And she was really frustrated with me because she was like, yeah, like, I feel like it's pulling teeth to get you to call me once a week. And that Mm. that's not a big ask. And it wasn't a big ask. But I just I felt so split Mm -hmm. because I couldn't fully be back in New York. I couldn't fully be in Iowa. And it just was a disaster. I was terrible. I was a terrible boyfriend (laughs) for three years. I'm not proud of it. Um, But yeah, I think that's something that makes long distance just so, so challenging. Yeah, yeah. And that was a relationship you really cared about and wanted to succeed. Yes. So think about all these other relationships too. <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, eh, whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what are some of the dominant messages that you grew up with about sex and relationships? And how do they really shape your perspective on them now? Yeah. So I I don't know what it was about my childhood. For, I managed to avoid, fortunately, internalizing a lot of like really negative messages about like queer and trans people for, I think, a couple reasons. One, there just weren't any messages about trans people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, cool, I, this is a void, but at least it's not a negative void. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there were some messages. I'll get to those. Um, <laughs> but like I, I felt like I didn't have and maybe this is because I didn't frankly grow up in a religious community. Um, I felt pretty confident like when i was younger it was like okay cool i'm gonna marry the cat um you know i'm just gonna live alone with this cat and then it was like oh no i have this debilitating crush on my best friend like every lesbian seems to go through so i did that for a bit and i felt i felt very grateful that i didn't feel this sort of sense of shame about my identity Mm. because so many people i knew did and that was something they really struggled with what i think did not mess me up but i did end up internalizing was the little smidgen of queer media i did have Mm -hmm. was the l word Mm. Um, and I love the L word. Like I can quote it at length. <laughs> I have seen every episode many times. I own it on DVD and still own it on DVD because <laughs> they changed the music in the first season. <laughs> so if you go on streaming and try and watch that first season, the music it's is wrong. <laughs> it's not. And I insist like, my partner will tell you this. I made her watch it on DVD. <laughs> and like I put it in my PlayStation because that was the only way we could make it. I was anyway. going to say I'm impressed that you still have a DVD player. But yeah. PlayStation. PlayStation. Makes sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think something in that, like that, 
vision of queerness and of queer womanhood. Um, I mean, there are many people smarter than me who who can deconstruct how problematic it is. But basically, if you haven't seen the show, it's a bunch of incredibly wealthy, almost exclusively white, thin, skinny, you know, mm-hmm. um, women in West Hollywood. And to me, that was what queer womanhood was. And, you know, I was white, but everything else really was not on the table, right? As, a, as an adolescent, I felt really... And I was like, I don't see myself in that world for many, many reasons. And there was a trans character on the show. And I had been sort of, I don't like the phrase struggling with my gender identity, because I think it like casts transness as this mm-hmm. like affliction that people yeah. suffer from. And mm-hmm. I don't I don't really believe in that narrative. But I had been questioning, certainly, my gender identity, and I was not comfortable in it as an adolescent. And then out of the void, there's this trans masculine character um, who was played by a trans masculine performer, but they just didn't treat this character with any kind of love or mm-hmm. i mean it's it's pretty horrifying actually mm-hmm. going back and rewatching. and he the character basically like takes testosterone and turns into a monster and mm-hmm. he loses all of his relationships like he'd been in a relationship with one of the kind of main characters and she just starts shooting on him and like anyway it's a really so i was like oh so if i and like the what really stuck with me is this conversation he has with this character who's very much a sort of like voice of reason character and she's like whatever, you know, what's going on with all of our strong butch women? Like, why are you betraying, Mm. right, yourself Mm. in doing these things? And as somebody who at the time saw myself, you know, I was a queer rights advocate. I like my a really formative experience for me was um, volunteering with this queer rights organization and like working in politics and going canvassing and going door to door and like being part of the queer community in my hometown and really seeing myself as like, yeah, I'm a lesbian, I'm at this, you know, like finding a lot of empowerment and safety in that, having these characters really reject him, mm-hmm. that I definitely, you know, that gave me pause. I felt mm-hmm. like in some ways that being a trans man was part of being like the enemy. Mm-hmm. And that's a narrative you see today. Mm-hmm. You see like JK Rowling, mm-hmm. you know, yes. she's, that's you know her, like one of her many long screeds is basically like, well, these young girls are transitioning because they're afraid of sexism, you know, and they're they're you know they're gender traitors basically. And I don't think that's true. I mm-hmm. don't like I I don't think that I transitioned. I went through all the trouble of transitioning mm-hmm. just because I couldn't handle people acting misogynistically at me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because for centuries. Like women have put up with it. Yeah, you know? exactly. so like I think that you could hold that and think, figure yeah, that out. Yeah, I think I could have yeah. handled it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, like, the, like, weird patronizing way that you insist that trans men are still women is also, like, kind of misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Um, like, denying people bodily autonomy, which, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, like, that I definitely, like, you know, it made it really hard to mm-hmm. to come out. And I think that was part of why I didn't come out until I knew trans people. I knew I, my um, one of my closest friends in high school um, is trans masculine and, and non-binary. And I, like, watched them come out and... I was also like, I don't want to deal with that. (laughs) Like, I don't want to deal with what you have to deal with. But then moving to New York for college and kind of starting over, I didn't know anybody in the city besides like a a couple family members. That was really freeing for me because I was so scared that this community that really meant a lot to me would completely reject me Mm -hmm. um, as a trans masculine person. And it, it is something that I still, you know, there are these sort of narratives of like, you know, what does it mean to be like a good queer or a good trans person? And, you know, I sometimes feel stuck because it's like, well, I exist in a way that I'm not perceived to be trans. I benefit greatly from that. Right. Like, you know, I talk about it as like cis passing privilege. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm perceived by pretty much everyone as a cisgender man. And while that gives me great security and safety and it means that I don't get harassed at the airport I don't get harassed when I'm just trying to live my life 
it also means that I'm no longer sort of visibly part of this community. That means a lot to me. And when I go into those spaces, I do feel uncomfortable, not because I'm, you know, because we don't all have the same interests or anything like that, but because I'm like, I don't want you to look at me and see like danger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to, I don't want you to perceive me as a cis man in these spaces. And so that can be hard, I think, Mm -hmm. to navigate, especially as somebody who's in a relationship, even though my partner and I both identify as queer, we're perceived to be in a, in a, we're in a straight passing relationship. Mm -hmm. And so, like, we don't go to, like, pride things, in part because neither of us are big drinkers and I don't like crowds and, like, the corporate, whatever I can get, corporate <laughs> corporate pride is a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, but, like, we don't tend to go to those sorts of spaces. And I think part of that is my own feelings of discomfort because I remember being that 15-year-old kid mm-hmm. and, like, seeing all of these people react specifically to Max in mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that that resonates. I, I imagine with a, a lot of other trans men, I, I can only speak for a friend that I had from DC that that really struggled for a long time deciding to transition because he was thinking similarly, like he he was like, am I giving up this right to fight for women's rights mm-hmm. if I now am a man? And like he also was attracted to cis women. And so he was sort of like, well, now I'm going to be straight, a straight man. And so like, it's it's interesting that, you know, LGBTQ is sort of this bubble lump of everybody and his identity as a lesbian is now no longer his identity. And, you know, like all of these things that he was kind of just struggling with these new identities and like wanting to feel aligned with with his gender, but also recognizing like I'm no longer going to be able to be in those spaces. Like you said, of, I've spent so much of my life like wanting to fight for, for women's rights and I can still do that. But what does that look like mm-hmm. now as a man? So I, I think. Yeah, it's messy. Yeah. It's real messy. I mean, like, and again, my prior relationship was not one that was perceived to be straight. When I was in college, my uh, then partner was also transmasculine. So it was like, I've been called every anti-gay slur you can imagine, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is another like real, you know, to go from getting like, catcalled and yelled at in high school by being perceived to be a queer woman, dating another queer woman, and then going to college and being perceived as two gay men, (laughs) Um, and how that was also a head trip. And then to like land at the end of that in a relationship that is perceived to be straight is also just yeah, yeah, wacky. And how do you, like it's in your head too, like also thinking about, like I've I've had friends that were two gay men and and one transitioned and and is now like the one that's still a cis man is sort of like they are no longer romantically engaged because he's like Mm. i'm a gay man and Mm -hmm. you're no longer a man yeah and you know and it's it's just lots of things Mm -hmm. to think about yeah i mean that was a conversation my partner and i had when we first started dating because she used the term like lesbian to refer to herself which i and this was when i was much younger i really was like oh mm -mm." (laughs) like i don't i don't like that because because there are you know getting into the like interpolitics of the queer community is a, a long conversation, but there is a way in which I think there are that masculinity, especially like a certain kind of like white masculinity is fetishized and really held up in certain queer women's spaces. Like thinking about at women's colleges, for example, or historically women's colleges. I remember shortly after I started college, there were these articles about Wellesley and this um, like this trans guy who was like in student leadership at Wellesley and the sort of way he talked about the social dynamics of how his masculinity was so prized and again held up. And so there are a number like, at the time, especially there were a number of like queer women who would be like, I'm a lesbian, but I'm attracted to this trans man. And like that sort of like seeing seeing him as like not really a man, you know, just like mm-hmm. a, a really masculine woman and mm-hmm. like, you know. So that I felt sort of rendered invisible or, or rendered unseen 
by that, even though, of course, at this point, I had been like I started my transition several years prior to my partner meeting me. She did not ever know me pre-transition. So I knew that consciously that she wasn't like seeing me as a woman, but it still felt really invalidating. And so we had to have a conversation about language. And now I feel I'm you know, much more secure in my relationship. And also I'm like, I don't care what you call yourself. You know, it's like you're, it's not my place to tell you how to identify. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it was presumptive of me to like to have that conversation with you back when we were like 21. But it is something that like came up and like, Mm -hmm. you know, thinking about like these relationships in the queer community and the labels that we use and how, you know, what that broadcasts to the other person Mm -hmm. um, about who they are anyway. Yeah. 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 I mean, I I feel like also with different spaces and fighting for women's rights, I think it's also you said something about like feeling safe. Right. And so I think in the movement, we think about like wanting more men as to be part of the Mm -hmm. journey, to be part of the fight, because it shouldn't just be. Uh, a woman's fight but like you show up as you know a white cis person and how that's like a little bit of like hmm is this person safe and so I really uh, resonated with that and it's like you know I try to oh yeah like (laughs) you know we got one in (laughs) you know but I think like just sort of remembering you know the privilege even when I don't often think about like my privilege in spaces right like you're fighting to like gain access to it when you also have privilege in that space too but yeah so that's what I was thinking about when you were talking (laughs) yeah Yeah, like I never want to like show up like a bunch of my friends wanted to go to Dyke March and I was like cool great I will drop you off you know, because like even though this is something that like 17 year old me would have been like, hell, I had my handmade Ani DeFranco shirt. <laughs> you know, she was yes. my second concert ever live. Mm-hmm. My first one was MCR. That was the kind of like little baby gay I was. <laughs> um, you know, that would have been so empowering for me as a, as a younger person. And that space means a lot to me. I don't want to take it because mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like I would be annoyed. That 17 year old me, if I saw some like dude mm-hmm. there, like I would I would feel like this is a space for me. Um, why are you in, intruding on it? And I guess mm-hmm. Dyke March is different than like an activist, you know, sort of. But like yeah. it, that, 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 I think, principle kind of guides a lot of mm-hmm. my hesitation around women's spaces. It's it's one of the reasons I'm grateful I didn't. I wanted to attend a women's college. I'm glad I didn't. Not because mm-hmm. I, I don't think that they're wonderful institutions, but because like my, my partner who went to one, she was like, yeah, I didn't want to be around men. And I'm like, that's fair. <laughs> that's real valid. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, I do. I, I'm glad that I wasn't in your classes annoying the hell out of you <laughs> by my presence. Yeah. So as a trans man, then where do you find your place if you feel like you can't show up in some of these places that you would have gone as a 17 year old? How do you find those those places where you do feel like you belong? Yeah, I mean, that's that is the sort of like <laughs> big question. because um, I, I do often feel a little bit like a misfit no matter where I am. And I think some of that's just because everybody's always a misfit no matter where they mm-hmm. are. Like we're never going to be able to fit comfortably everywhere. I think finding, you know, I think my friends are huge. I think having a lot of my friends are trans um, of some flavor themselves. And I also think that there are little like nuances, right, in how spaces describe themselves that can kind of cue you into what are the kind of expectations for the space? What are the awareness around like trans identities in this space? I think like I would go to a meeting for queer people more than I would go to a meeting for like, you know, gays and lesbians, mm-hmm. right? That distinction mm-hmm. I think has meaning to me. And you know, it can be weird. I also like I don't feel super comfortable in spaces for like gay men as much as I can like talk drag race and all of those things. It's like the ways in which my I experience objectification and like the kind of gaze on my body when I transition that I never did mm. like, being perceived as like a masculine of center lesbian or a masculine of center queer woman. And then I like you know I'm now being read as a gay man and the kind of comments I got I was mm. I had this like 
moment of like, oh, straight women, wow, have a role of <laughs> like a kind of sympathy that I'd never really had mm. because I hadn't experienced the male gaze in that way or this is whatever, all of those things, gaze. Um, and so, yeah, it's tough. I think like looking for those little nuances mm -hmm. or I remember when I was looking into graduate programs, I asked like, is this a trans friendly space? Mm -hmm. And people would say it's a queer friendly space. And I'd say that's not what I asked. Mm -hmm. um, like those sorts of nuances and those sort of, I think, little cues, I think not to make generalizations about the community, but I think a lot of queer and trans people, because we're so used to like subtext and reading into subtext in order to kind of find our stories, because a lot of times it's just not text that is changing. But a lot of times like queer and transness exist only as allegory, exist only as something you have to kind of dig into. I think that makes us maybe pretty good at, you know, when evaluating different ways that people talk about their communities, I think it, mm. it makes it easier to kind of see through the subtle things that people do, how to kind of find a space that's going to feel comfortable. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm wondering, like, who or what really has then played a significant role in your sexual and relationship journey? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, see, I did. I did look at the questions in advance. <laughs> I, I thought I had prepared, but then it was super hot and my head went empty. Um, <laughs> that's often happens. I mean, I think beyond like, again, the L word, because that was unfortunately really like that was sort of the be all end all. Yeah. Um, like I remember like being a, a, you know, 15, 16 year old in my first relationship and like not knowing how any of the mechanics were supposed to work because that's not what I was at. You know, you don't ever see that on TV. And I'm like mm -hmm. watching the L word and like, OK, like what's going on? Of course, that was completely unrealistic. It's mostly straight <laughs> people um, like so stuff like that. But I think I think Tumblr like the, the the world of Tumblr and mm -hmm. the like people I knew there who I had some like IRL queer and trans friends, but then like getting onto the internet and meeting other people in those spaces, I think just understanding that there were options outside of like what my parents had, whatever mm -hmm. else in my neighborhood had. Um, and I also think that experience I had as a, as a teenager in politics, like how revolutionary it was to meet boring, everyday queer and trans adults. <laughs> That's something every time I work with queer and trans youth, I'm like, put yourself in a space where you're surrounded by boring queer and trans adults. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't feel like I had any kind of picture or guide. Like everybody, you know, in high school, everybody's like, oh, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And it was just nothing. Like I couldn't tell you any, you know, I could say, I don't know, I want to be near a bookstore. Like I want to be in the city. <laughs> I want to have a cat. That was it. Like I couldn't really envision what my day-to-day -day life would be like. And, you know, at 15 years old, being able to meet like a trans guy who's like happily married and really boring as hell. And all he wants to do is show you pictures of his dog. Like that was great. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, is this, cause the, besides Max, the only other version of trans life I had was like, boys don't cry, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, cool. You're either going to be like ostracized by your friends or, you know, raped and murdered as, mm -hmm. as, as happens to Brandon Tina, um, in real life as well as in the fictional film. So yeah, I think friends, Tumblr, but also really like just meeting boring adults and being able to, to like, obviously they weren't having explicit conversations with <laughs> me, but just seeing the way that they live their relationships and like, you know, hearing about like, a coworker, Daryl, who was like, yeah, I'm going to go see my husband this weekend. And, you know, we're so excited to watch Grey's Anatomy. And like, like those sorts of things, mm -hmm. I think, are really, really powerful for me. Yeah. That you could picture your tenure, like the vision of yourself for 10 years, and it could be whatever you wanted. It didn't yeah. have to be based in your identity. Yeah, exactly. And also I could or or even more, I could just fill in the details mm -hmm. of like, oh, you're a quick, you're not this like mystical, magical thing. You're like mm -hmm. a human being who owns a couch and mm -hmm. a television set, like, you know, those sorts of like, um, again, really 
boring details. Yeah. Um, now you're that boring example for <laughs> so <students>. dull. <laughs> yeah. My my GAs are like, oh, what'd you do this weekend? I was like, oh, we watched, you know, Alex Garnaschelli's new like cooking competition <laughs> show and like went to Target. Really exciting. And they're like, oh, I went to Beyonce. Cool. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Good Sex with Alexander Pines. We had such a fun and fascinating conversation that we decided to split it into two. So you get to hear it all. Tune in next time for part two, where we continue to talk about advocating for yourself in healthcare and how Alexander unconsciously replicated his Midwestern culture that didn't translate so well with others. Also, tune in to find out how to view his amazing nail art on Instagram. If you have questions about the podcast or anything we talked about today, please feel free to reach out to us at goodsex.podcast at nyu.edu. This email address is monitored during business hours and may take three to four days for follow-up. We are definitely open to critical and thoughtful feedback, as we didn't cover everything in this episode and might have said something that was inaccurate or that had a negative impact on someone. If you have questions about your sexual health and are an NYU student, you can connect with our Student Health Center sex expert at sexpert at nyu.edu or schedule an appointment through the Student Health Center portal. Look at our show notes for additional information and resources, including organizations, articles, books, and videos. If you have urgent mental health concerns, safety issues, or you are worried that someone might have caused harm to you, or that you might have caused harm to someone, then you can contact NYU's Confidential Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999. Chat with them using their mobile app or email them at wellness.exchange at nyu.edu. For anyone... NYU or non-NYU listeners, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673, the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, or the National Mental Health Hotline. Simply dial 988 from anywhere in the U.S. Thanks for listening and tune in to our next episode where we continue to talk about good sex at NYU. Subscribe to the podcast to hear all of our quickies and interviews with NYU community members. Thanks to our content contributors for this episode, Bernadette Kerr, Alyssa LaFosse, Dr. Dominic Baini-Emisa, Zoe Raguzios, and to our health promotion team, Anna Genova, Jenny Mellum, Parade Stone, and Arna Dixit, and to Gotham Studios and Karen Ortman. 